I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The book club where what can you do if you don't like knowing about the book, not just what's in it? You can shut the fuck up and listen to something else. No, we regularly get the hateful reviews that people love the concept, hate the pod. And to you, I say, and this is not good marketing. This is horrible strategy. Strategy. It's a tragedy how bad this strategy is. There are podcasts that read books, do not question for a second the narrator's motive, blind spots, malintents, PR, and they just verbatim Wikipedia you the narrative. And you can go get that. But what me and Ashley are are smart people and funny people. Well, funny people. Yeah, funny people with smart intentions. And do you know what? What? If you think that what we do when we call into question the integrity of a narrative is bullying. Call me and give me your home address because I'd like to bully you. I do think that to think that us analyzing the words that were put out there for public consumption is bullying means that you have never experienced bullying and you are one lucky, lucky little ladybug. I can't wait to do a new podcast in the future where people send in what they think they've been bullied over and I tell you whether or not that counts as bullying. I hope that that happens for you someday. But for now, the people that we do appreciate are the ones who come here for the content for the conversation and for the love of the game to those people. Thank you for your five-star reviews. If you haven't left one yet, we would appreciate it quite endlessly if you did. And I will be reading the names of our most recent five-star reviewers at the end of this episode. And for now, Claire, Mm -hmm. if you were to write a memoir about your week, what would you title this chapter? Lost in the Sauce. Oh my God, have you been having a lot of sauce? Literally, yes. Can you walk us through the sauce types before we get into what you mean? I've had aiolis, I've had marsalas, I've had cacio and pepes. I mean, I can see how you get lost. I've had guacamoles, I've had. Okay, are you considering guacamole a sauce? Honestly, aioli, I'm also gonna walk this back. That's not a sauce. It's a dip. No, Ashley. Aioli is mayonnaise. Aioli is a spread. You're going to call mayonnaise a sauce? Okay. I just feel like you're actually being disrespectful to the Italian culture. A sauce is anything on the liquid side. Anyway, my point is my boyfriend's parents have been in town and we've been eating like nonstop and I could not tell you what day of the week it is. I've never in my life had this experience where like after Thanksgiving, you know, you'll be like, I'm so full. I can never eat again. And then the next morning you woke up and you're like, well, I guess I could eat now. (laughs) Like, or even at the end of a Thanksgiving, you're like by eight, 9 p.m. You're like, I could go seconds. If you were Cassie David, you'd be too full to fuck. Well, I like actually hate everything you're saying to me right now. I feel like you're coming at me, undermining me, and then upsetting me. I'm sorry. My point is just I feel very lost in sauce in terms of I don't know what day it is. I don't know what tomorrow is. Tomorrow is actually the greatest of the year. I have one hot take on earth, and it's that the best day of the year in New York City is Marathon Sunday. I'm so excited. I can't wait for it. If it weren't for Marathon Sunday, I would be like, is today Friday? Is it Tuesday? Is it Thursday? All I know is that I can never look at food again until Marathon Sunday. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If your week was a marathon, what mile would you be at? Oh, man. I think I'd be mile one starting right now. (laughs) I just started because I... You think you're going to live to be 600 years old? Yeah. I think I've turned over a new page. I think I'm in a new phase of my life. And I would title this chapter, My Chronic Illness. And I think I've discovered something about myself. I've diagnosed myself with what I call husband's disease. In the past, I've stated quite frequently that I never get sick. And I think it really makes Claire mad. I'm shaking. My foot is over here trembling as <laughs> okay, I hold myself back. Okay, because I'm saying that I don't do that anymore. Okay, 
I'm not saying I don't do it anymore, but I'm saying I've acknowledged what my problem is, is I have this husband's disease where every time I get sick, I like think that I'm the only person who's ever been sick. And it's this rare earth stopping occurrence that no one else can relate to and no one can understand. And everyone should feel sympathy for me. And I get that that's ridiculous. And that's why we're on mile one. We're starting on a new page where I get that the way that I am when I'm sick is insane. But I was sick this week and had a lot of time to think. And I'm like, I don't think that the way I approach this is quite right. Yeah, I do agree with you. I do think you're like, I'm never sick, except for the two to three times a year. I get a thing that you might think is a cold, but it's actually much worse than a cold. I don't get the sick the way you get sick in a normal, boring, cold way. I'm not a bitch about it. But when I get sick, it's worse than anything you've ever experienced. Like a husband. You are like a husband. Like a Midwestern husband on a sitcom with a beautiful wife. And I'm gross. I'm the beautiful wife. I just feel like I had a week where I really let myself be sick. And I was like, wait a second. I think other people have also been sick. Speaking of the world revolving around me this week, should we get into one of the most self-centered memoirists we've ever read? Caitlyn Jenner. Before we start, what did you know about her? Well, I watched a lot of Keeping Up With The Kardashians growing up and have through this podcast and through my life been very entrenched in Kardashian gossip. They are deeply ever present and obviously Caitlyn was a toenail of that (laughs) golem. (laughs) Am I wrong? Nope. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I knew whatever was presented to us. What about you? A post-transition Caitlyn I knew as like not the representative anybody had hoped for. I know that she is like a Republican who murdered somebody. I know that like as a father, she did not raise her children. And then once she left the Kardashian clan, she distanced herself from those children as well. I know that she has 10 children in the wake of her life. Yes. That may or may not have ever met her. Okay, you know that thing where like when you're in the moment, you're in the moment. But as soon as you walk outside the door, you're like, who was I just talking to? Object permanence. Object permanence. I feel like Caitlin has no object permanence as a parent. If she is not living in the house with you, she is completely just the existence has been washed from the memory. I agree. All right, well, let's get into Caitlyn Jenner. I'm So at the beginning of Caitlin's book, there is an author's note. She says, transgender guidelines suggest that I no longer be referred to as Bruce in any circumstance. Here are my guidelines. I will refer to the name Bruce when I think it is appropriate and the name Caitlin when I think it is appropriate. Bruce existed for 65 years and Caitlin is just going on her second birthday. That's the reality. Even though she has specifically put out what her preferences, I don't think Caitlin's going to listen to this podcast. I do think other trans people might listen to this podcast. We're going to go with what we have heard makes people comfortable and refer to her as Caitlin as the author of this book throughout the book. When we are quoting the book at times when she refers to herself as Bruce and uses he him pronouns and the quotes will use he him. So the only time we're going to use that outdated information is quoting directly from the words that Caitlin wrote. Yeah. We're just going to speak of her and that's where Caitlin falls on it. We will get into that opinion in and of itself as we get into the book. So here we go. Caitlin freaking Jenner. That's not true. Her middle name is actually Marie. Caitlin Marie freaking Jenner. Caitlin Marie Jenner was born on October 28th, 1949. The same day an Air France jet crashed into the Zorgies and killed all on board. And the 63rd birthday of the Statue of Liberty. Typical of the conflict of my life. So this is truly off the jump. One of the more self-centered things I've ever read to be like, can you believe on my birthday, an airplane crashed, the Statue of Liberty had a birthday and I was born. I mean, what are you supposed to think? So basically, Caitlin grew up, goes between Westchester and then moves to Connecticut, ultimately in high school. 
She has a very typical Northeastern upbringing, comes from a middle-class, all-white suburb. Her father was a World War II veteran that actually survived D-Day. Yeah, which is my birthday. Typical of my life. (laughs) I've always said knowing Ashley is an absolute catastrophe. (laughs) The day you were born was a tragedy that struck many. And the mother is just, you know, a mom. A mom bopping around. She seems like a real sweetie. Caitlin is the second child of four. She has an older sister and then a younger brother and a younger sister. The younger sister is only ever referred to at this moment in time when Caitlin's like, yep, first came Pam, then came me, then came Bert, and then came Liz. We never hear from her again until the acknowledgement when she's like, my sister Pam is a remarkable in so many ways. I idolized her as a child. She was one of the first people I ever confided in because I knew I could trust her with my secret. My other sister, Lisa, has also been there for me. That's the beginning and end of the mentions of Lisa. We have now covered in its entirety Lisa, the sister's existence in Caitlin's life. Anyway, so the dad is a tree surgeon. What, why don't he's a tree cutter? If anything, he's the murderer of a Caitlin tree. Caitlin says specifically tree surgeon, and that made me laugh. <laughs> and I thought the people should know. What if they did a spinoff of Grey's Anatomy? One of them just like got kind of loopy and became a tree surgeon instead and was like, he's tachycardic. <laughs> the thing is, if any surgeon had the track record that Caitlin's dad had, they would be fired from the profession because mostly Caitlin's dad was a landscaper who was just cutting down trees. You can't just be murdering people in their midst and then be like, I'm a doctor. I'm this here to help. This shrub is tamponading. So Caitlin showed really early signs of gender dysphoria from the jump when her parents and family was out of the house. She would try on her mom's clothes and then I guess outgrew the mom's clothes pretty quickly and would use the sister's clothes. So I guess was also taller. I don't know. I don't really know why I went mom to sister when she got bigger, but she would try on clothes. She would try on makeup, try on shoes. She had a lot of moments where she like knew what she was doing would not be okay if caught. So there was like that cover up. This starts when she's as young as six years old and it exists throughout her whole life. It never subsides. And she's always like, well, maybe it's a passing phase up until she's about 40 because of her gender dysphoria. She doesn't know it at the time, but she's always a distant child. She doesn't have a lot of friends. She says she's so desperate to make friends with people that she'll do anything it takes. And that's something that exists with her till this day. Which is funny because I'm like, okay, if you're looking for a way to get people to like you, I have a couple off the bat suggestions. You actually seem like you're actively going out of your way to piss people the fuck off. Yeah. She also says that growing up, she was dyslexic. It wasn't diagnosed until middle school. And then off the bat, there's all these weird contradictions in her memoir that make no sense. She goes, I was never a naturally great athlete. But as I got older and see how my drive to perform and outwork all the other athletes develops, the decathlon becomes more important to me. And then there's this weird line of like, I like to win, but competition doesn't ooze from every pore. And I feel like that is what you look for in athletes. There's either the natural ability or the overwhelming competition. And Caitlin is like, I wasn't overly competitive. I wasn't a great athlete. And it's like... But then also, the first time she gets into sports, sports is it's like middle school and they have everybody run the mile and she's the fastest by far and then she's like oh I guess I was a natural athlete she's a pretty hot shot athlete at the school throughout high school she's like I was always popular because I was the star of the football team and the football team is the most important sport but also I didn't have many friends and also I was very quiet in the background she was like a beta leader so there's a lot of contradictions because then later she goes on to talk about how she was hyper competitive and it took a while for her to learn how to turn that off and it's like I thought you said you weren't competitive and then it's like my coach in college said I was a natural athlete. I was only one of the top five athletes they'd ever coached. Her college coach was like, but you had the drive to win like I'd never seen before. Here's another thing that I wanted to say that I meant to mention up top, just because I found this line in the book about how humor is always their favorite form of deflection. This book I found so deeply unfunny and unhumorous. And I know it's not a funny topic. And I know there is a lot of seriousness being held within. No, but there's definitely a couple of times where she's like, and then I made this joke. Haha. And you're like, 
But also the way it's written, the tone throughout this entire book is so deeply serious. The writing feels extremely somber the whole time. By the time she goes to high school, it has been noticed that whether or not she admits that she is a natural athlete, she plays basketball, football, and track. She gets casually recruited to some Christian school in Iowa, and she's like, I don't really want to go to Iowa. So she decides she's going to spend the summer working for her dad, going to community college, and then seeing where she can go next. And I guess the day before school starts that next fall, she gets a call from the coach, and the coach is like, hey, our quarterback just fucked up. We need you. And she's like, okay, you know what? Now that you ask a second time, I'll come. She goes out to Iowa, joins the football team, immediately gets moved from quarterback to safety. And then immediately gets her knee blown out. And then after recovering from that, coming back to sports is when the coach who has coached other decathlon athletes. Famously, apparently, coached multiple Olympic decathlon athletes. I have to say there's one thing in this book that I have to call bullshit on. I don't know what committee sat down and said the decathlon is the decider of the ultimate athlete, but I did not vote. I feel like that is something that has been thrust upon us. Who's the great decathloner of today? Well, it's part of the narrative of this great Olympics. It's this Olympic specific. I don't know if it's this Olympic specific, but I think it's this era specific and I think it's part of the tornado that is why we know who Caitlyn Jenner is. We'll get to it when we get to the Olympics, but I think there was a lot of things that happened at the exact right time. And I think part of it was the decathlon PR. Part of it was overall Olympics PR because it is a hard sport. Think about how to be the best at one track and field event is very hard. And to be the best at every track and field event is extremely hard. And to be the best at every track and field event on the same so two day period. I don't period, think that you are the best at every track and field event. I think you're the best against other people who haven't committed to a specialty. I think it's the generalist sports. And you know what they say? A jack of all trades is a master of none. I think Caitlin calls herself that like three times in this book. And I'd have to agree. This was also the Olympics during a time where Luke Moniz has that joke in the olden days. The best athletes were just the ones who ate the most milk and hot dogs. <laughs> Everybody was like wearing Converse, smoking cigarettes at the starting line. It was that thing where it's like, I train during lunch. And my job is a railway keeper or something. <laughs> the keeper of the rails. So... She's at college. She gets into the decathlon. She meets this girl named Christy. They fall in love. Christy is the daughter of a local pastor. They decide after graduation, they're going to get married. Christy was smart and assertive. The first in what would become a trend of wives who were also the same way. They took care of me, did everything for me, and I let them do everything for me. Not simply because it made my life easier, but because of my own internal weakness that only got worse over time. I am averse to confrontation. My only comeback is too often a whiny petulance. I felt I did not deserve to be assertive. I did not deserve to be proud. All of my marriages had a distinct pattern. Pattern, compatibility and love followed by eventual unraveling right upon graduation caitlin auditions for the olympics no <laughs> she applies to the olympics okay she comes in third at the olympic trials and she goes i was such an unknown at that point at 22 years old that the new york times got my name wrong she ends up going to the 1972 olympics and places 10th and that's like a big freaking dull it's a huge deal for a nobody to just show up and place 10th so then right after the olympics is when she marries christy and then christy is supporting her while she trains for the 1976 olympics this is what i was talking about with the firestorm of events that all sort of coalesced to create this major press moment this is the year when nbc decided to start pring the fuck out of the olympics they gave it a fuck ton of airtime. They're like, we're going to show Olympic events on TV for the two weeks that they're happening. We're going to make it this at-home experience. We're going to create all these stories around the athletes and make people really root for it. Plus, it was right when America was real freaked out by the Soviets. A lot of red scare. So the fact that 
the U.S. and Russia were like really up against each other. It creates this big old tale that is beautiful to watch. And then here's Caitlyn Jenner with her all-American couple. She's really beautiful. She's like blonde and cute. I have to read this quote because it makes me laugh about something that is true about how dumb America is. Because of all the disappointment in the U.S. team, they hadn't been doing that well that year. It was falling on me to salvage the country's performance. It wasn't only that we needed to defeat the Soviets. Our country was convulsing the aftermath of Watergate, the resignation of Richard Nixon as president, and the debacle of Vietnam. Our political system had failed us. Our once sacred values had failed us. We felt weak and confused. We were a country adrift. Sports could help right now. Oh, Christy, I've got to carry the whole United States. I do love that she's like not that off base here that we're like, wow, our leaders are lying to our faces. Our country's falling apart. We just sent 100,000 men to die in Vietnam. We're about to get nuked by Soviet Russia. I hope this man can run quick. (laughs) Oh, thank God he can. (laughs) Never mind. We're going to be okay. So then she wins the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. So basically after... The Munich 1972 Olympics, when she comes in 10th, she goes, you know what? I'm going to win. And she puts everything into winning. After she wins, it's that iconic moment where someone just handed her an American flag and she just did a victory lap around the track. And it became this groundswell moment that basically skyrocketed her to fame. I want to read this interesting part after the gold medal from Caitlin's mother. Fame and fortune takes the family apart. And I thought, you know, if he had come in second in Montreal, no one would know his name. And wouldn't it be wonderful if he just had a much more normal life, got married, had his kids and a closer relationship. When our kids are growing up, we wish for them to have fame and fortune and be successful. And we think of it monetarily mostly that that brings happiness. But I think in my head now, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it to quote the Pussycat Dolls. But I think that's really interesting that the mom is looking back now on this moment and being like, if that had never happened, she never would have been keeping up with the Kardashians. And that's that was the real downfall. Well, more specifically, the thing about Caitlyn Jenner is I think it would be very easy to blame the Kardashians on her failings as a parent and a person, but they start immediately after the Montreal Olympics. And so we're now talking about Caitlyn Jenner comes out a huge star. I'm just going to read some of the quotes. She picks some of the headlines. Bruce Jenner, the golden boy, Hollywood handsome. Bruce Jenner always says the right thing at the right time. This is a couple America will not be allowed to forget, which is funny because we've absolutely forgotten her first wife. Who is Christy? Jenner is twirling the nation like a baton. He and his wife, Christy, are so high up on the pedestal of American heroism, it would take a crane to get them down. So that is the height that Caitlyn Jenner comes out to. And she even says, she came out of it and was like, I was going to make this my career. She says, I know I am photogenic, intelligentic, and wholesome. I do intuitively understand the media game and the fame game and the endorsement game. It's all a game and you have to play it. So they go headfirst into it. Caitlin is traveling and doing the finding the champion within speech. They get a fuck ton of endorsement deals. There's just a lot of appearances, endorsements, travel, fame. She goes, I am living the dream and sometimes it feels like a dream or at least enough of a diversion to suppress my gender issues. I miss the grand diversion terribly. The grand diversion is what she called basically those four years of intense training for the Olympics. Honestly, it was driven by her need to have a single-minded goal to like block out the gender dysphoria. That feeling of waking up every day and knowing exactly what I was going to do. I don't know how I'm going to replace it, although I have given it considerable thought. It is interesting to look at this time when the world is moving so fast around her because she feels pretty despondent. She tests for the role of Superman that eventually goes to Christopher Reeve and is just like, I didn't really care if I got it or not. Yeah, 
she's signing on to be a sports broadcaster, which is tough because of her dyslexia. She can't read off a teleprompter. It's also important as soon as she wins the games of Montreal, she's like, I want out of sports forever. She's not an athlete in the sense that she like loves the game. She just knew that this is something that she could focus on and win and then immediately take that and figure out what the next phase of career could be. She goes, I have lost my ultra competitive instinct. Odd for someone who had such a strong one. Not odd for the person you said 20 pages earlier had no competitive instinct. So she's back home near her hometown doing one of her speeches and visiting family at the same time. And her younger brother, Bert, who she'd never been that close to, they have, I think, eight years difference, has just graduated from high school and isn't really sure what's going to come next. So they're like, actually, what makes sense is if you go live with Caitlin and Christy in California for a year, and then you can have residency and go to college in California with in-state tuition. During Caitlin's speech, she has this car lent to her and lends it to Bert to drive around during the speech and Bert crashes it and dies killing him and his girlfriend. And this, I mean, obviously shakes their entire family to their core. I mean, the mom is quite obviously devastated. Losing your 18-year-old son is impossible. But Caitlin says, never in my life have I beat myself up about it. It is a mechanism of protection, I know, but I have come to the conclusion that it was Bert's day to die. Just as on the beaches of Normandy, it was my father's day not to. It was the way it was. I feel like this is an almost sociopathic way to look at it. It reminds me a lot of Lynn Spears when she hit that kid and was like, well, God called back his son that day. So I don't know. I'm not saying that she should have beat herself up about it because, of course, in no way is it her fault. She- it's not her fault, but she should grieve. I do think to say I never once. Maybe let someone else tell you it's not your fault. Yeah. Also, it doesn't have to be your fault or not your fault. You could also just be really sad that your brother died when he was supposed to be moving in with you. In no way does it seem that the death of the brother changes Caitlin's course. So then they have a baby. They name it after the brother, Bert. So I guess that's how it comes up again. In 1978, Christy and I have our first child, Bert, named after my brother. He's a beautiful baby and will turn out to be a beautiful son. Tough, fiercely independent, loyal, the owner of a burgeoning dog sitting business that he has started from scratch. The way that Caitlin introduces each of the children that she births then abandons is shocking. Dog sitting business from scratch. Do some people sit on a little doggy empire? I mean, Claire, if you today were to start a dog sitting business, do you own one leash? No. Well, that'd be starting from scratch. But Christy and I are fraying. We are not a perfect partnership because there is no perfect partnership. Training for the Olympics was simple. We had no needs and very little money. It was so easy and innocent compared to the pressures of trying to live up to something you know you are not. My gender issues are there. Gender issues are always there. But Christy and I have just grown apart. And then here's one of the craziest sentences I've ever heard. Okay. I don't believe I have changed since the games. It is the entire world that has changed around me literally overnight. Christy leaves first without telling me. To suggest that going from nobody to an extremely famous patriotic hero of the Olympic games did not change you, but that it was everybody at the same time around you changing is crazy. She does go on to not take any true accountability for why her and Christy fell apart. Blames Christy for just leaving. And Caitlin had no idea why you said this earlier. If you are in a two person partnership and one person is so unhappy that they leave in the dead of night, there was clues. If you are ever caught off guard by being dumped, that means you deserve to get dumped because you were so out of touch with your partner that you didn't know that there were these major fundamental issues. That was driving the young mother of a child in the 70s away. 
That's not nothing. That's not nothing. And then she goes, maybe she had grown weary of being in my shadow. Maybe she feels I had become one dimensional. Her (laughs) recollection is that I had gotten bored and no longer cared about the marriage. I have my truth. She has hers. You know what? Her truth sounds a little bit more truthful. Her truth sounds like there's some legs. They remain separate uh, for many months. And what does Caitlin do in the meantime? Hang out at the Playboy Manch. So one of the things that comes across here is the beginning of Caitlin's distrust for the media and absolute dismissal of anybody's criticism of her as just media hullabub tabloid bullshit. So she's like... I never stood a chance essentially because after the Olympic Games, I was put on this pedestal of being like this golden boy dream couple. And she's like, how could I have ever lived up to that? It was just a matter of time before they took me down. And there is truth to that. Like we as a country and the media do love. We love to build them up and tear them down. Mona Lisa by Britney Spears. But (laughs) the way that she then uses this as protection against any sort of accountability or inward and introspection is something that she takes with her for the rest of her life, I think. I agree, but I want to talk exactly about what happened here. So Caitlin is hanging out at the Playboy Mansion during this separation and meets Linda Thompson, Elvis's ex. On May 1st, 1979. And they start talking a little bit, but Caitlin is like, I actually might get back together with my ex. She ends up trying to work it out with Christy. They get back together for a few months before Christy just disappears in the night for good. So they get back together for about three months. And then one day Caitlin comes home. Christy is gone again. So then Caitlin just calls up Linda pretty immediately and is like, all right, well, I'm actually pretty single now. <laughs> what you doing? So Caitlin gets together with Linda Thompson, Linda Thompson, Christy calls and is like, by the way, I am pregnant from that brief reconciliation. Caitlin says, I suggest to her that given that we are headed for divorce, she doesn't have to give birth and can get an abortion. I'm thinking about what life will be like for a child brought into the world in which the parents are in a divorce proceedings. And yes, I'm thinking about my image and future livelihood. Christy becomes livid. She makes it clear that the child is hers, not ours, and wants me to have nothing to do with raising the child. I bring up the issue of financial responsibility and ask why I would help support a child when the mother has told me to stay away. This was a line that fucked with me. Maybe it sounds callous to anyone who has not been involved in a divorce. Nothing is ever framed the way it should be. You are blinded by emotions and view everything from only your own perspective. That is so fucked to have suggested an abortion and then be like, all right, well, if you want to keep it, you pay for it. Cassandra, you may have never heard of because I don't know that Caitlyn Jenner's ever heard of her, is born June 1980, almost immediately after the daughter is born. And of course, Caitlyn's not there for the birth. And later is like, I regret that I wasn't there. I realized I probably should have been there. Yeah. Probably. And every time it's brought up, Caitlin has this weird thing of like, I just didn't know what to do because Christy told me not to be there. So like I was told not to be there. So I didn't go. But now I'm like, should I have gone? Yeah, you should have gone. Anyway, so right after Cassandra is born, they call her Casey. Linda gives Caitlin a letter and is like, congrats. And Caitlin's like, congrats for what? And she's like, you're going to be a dad again. I tell her we must get married. This is about Linda Thompson. I cannot bear any more hurt and pain in my life or in anyone's. I want to play a real role in fatherhood. So we decide that as soon as my divorce is final, we will wed. They end up getting married January 5th, and Bert is there as the best man. And then a week later, in what I would term a very unexpected wedding gift, People Magazine prints a first-person account from Christy of the circumstances of her breakup. She talks about how she was going to get an abortion only because of Bruce. Yeah, how Bruce was trying to like force her to get an abortion. I'm not sure why Christy chose to write that. It further damaged my reputation. I also know that Casey later found out that I made the comment, which only added to the sorrow of a relationship that was never right from the start and can never be fully repaired. The order in which Caitlin writes those sentences. One, it further damaged my reputation. Two, it also 
kept me estranged for the rest of my life from my daughter. The fact that that is of secondary importance, that 40 years later, she still is first and foremost concerned about the reputation, what people are going to think of the fact that she's not there as a father, as opposed to what actually not being there as a father has done to a living, breathing human. I can guarantee everyone who read that article has forgotten by now. You know who hasn't forgotten that you were never there? Casey, your daughter. There's not ownership. And all of the ownership, any lines of it feel like they were put there after writing the book and being like, I guess I should add a line here being like, and maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I guess I do think that there is this weird thing where she treats what the media is saying about her as like unfair societal judgment. When I'd say in actuality, there's a legitimate person being hurt. And then there's things we're judgmental about. When people are mean about people's weights, when people are mean about a breakup, getting back together, adults are allowed to do whatever they want. To say, as the father of a child, I don't want to raise it, abort it, I'm not paying for it. And then be like, oh, suddenly I'm Mr. Bad Guy just because <laughs> I refuse to raise my own child after ditching my wife because I got too famous for her. Suddenly I'm not Mr. Perfect anymore. And it's like, well, yeah, these are actually... Pretty bad things to have done. So the marriage to Linda only lasts four years. Something that I think we forgot to note that is important is Caitlin does tell both wives about her gender dysphoria. She tells Christy after they're married when Christy finds out that Caitlin has been wearing her bras. Yeah. Because she like left a rubber band on the clasp. Christy was like, why is there a rubber band on the clasp? And Caitlin was like, I literally didn't know how to lie about why there would just be a rubber band on her bra. Because presumably Caitlin never did a lick of housework. So to be like, oh, I was doing laundry and it must have gotten caught. I was just going to say, <laughs> say you, it happened in the laundry. But I guess I don't think that there's a single reason that Caitlin would have been doing a favor for Christy like putting her clothes away, doing the laundry, organizing things. That wouldn't have been a plausible excuse. For all of these women, it's something that they choose to ignore. Like they see it, they hear it. I think they also don't understand it because at this point, Caitlin is still not aware of the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. She just knows that she has this urge to make the way she feels inside match her outside appearance, which means borrowing women's clothes and putting on a little bit of makeup and trying to walk around Sometimes she'll do a lap outside in the dark or something. When she is telling these women, I don't think that they're understanding what's happening or the severity of what it is because Caitlin doesn't know either. She says both of them were initially very supportive and just like, sure. I kind of think they had a don't ask, don't tell policy. In the same way that I always say athletes are allowed to cheat, but keep it on the road. Caitlin's profession was very much a traveling profession. And it was something that she did for herself in hotels. And I do think they were like, whatever you do out there. But the difference is with Linda, I think she really wants to share this part of her life. So she calls Linda one day and says, meet me at this hotel. She knocks on the door of the hotel room where I'm staying. I open it. I'm in a dress and a wig and makeup. Linda says nothing. I'm not sure what I was thinking then. And I'm not entirely sure 30 years later. I know I was terribly frustrated and irritable. Maybe I was blaming Linda for not letting me live my life when, in fact, I had never told her about my life until we had been married for several years. Maybe I wanted the marriage to end and this was the surefire way to do it. Or maybe after telling Linda, I felt compelled that she now actually meet the woman inside me. I had to try. I realized I've done something terrible by putting her in this situation. I will never forget that look of shock and hurt on her face. I have hurt her and she does not deserve it. I guess this isn't working out. So at this point, her and Linda break up. She is now alone. Linda goes on to marry David Foster of marriage fame. Stepfather to the stars. (laughs) (laughs) So this begins the ending of the second marriage. And I have to say, Caitlin talks a lot about her absence as a father. And I just want to read this one more passage. Not just as a father, but as a human being, I have a really hard time sympathizing with her for the same reason I had a hard time sympathizing with Holly. And it's the lack of empathy. It's 
this story of overcoming an obstacle, finding your true self, the entire point of this memoir is like, here's an example of a life that was lived in the shadow and how important it is to find your true self. You never know who's living an authentic life. And so she's talking about how she's abandoned all of her kids. Yeah, because after this divorce with Linda, she becomes very absent in Brody and Brendan's lives. And she's forgiving herself. She goes, but they have what their father never had. They know who they are. They are comfortable with who they are. And it did not take them until the final quarter of life to even begin to like who they are. Thank God. Caitlin's dad died not knowing that Caitlin was Caitlin. And not as a young man. Caitlin's dad died in his 70s. He lived a very full life not knowing that his child was a woman. And so probably on his deathbed, he would have said, my kids are happy. I guess I just feel that for somebody to experience this, to walk around not being your authentic self and have truly nobody known. Cause that is a big theme of this book. She's like, listen, it's crazy enough for somebody to have come out as trans in the eighties, but for this star male athlete, this perfect specimen of masculine virality and handsomeness and health. And everyone thinks I'm a playboy. Everyone thinks we're this golden couple. I'm the ultimate physical male being for that person to identify as a woman, to come out as transgender. Nobody would have understood it. And then she turns around and goes, But these children that I've never really met before, I can tell you they don't live a lie. How do you know? You think Brody Jenner is his most authentic self as a sought-after DJ? That's how he's described in this book, a sought-after DJ. Brody Jenner at this point was married to a woman who would leave him for Miley Cyrus within weeks. Brody Jenner was married to a woman who left him for a one-week fling with Miley Cyrus. She got a boat ride around Venice. I think she won a meet and greet with Miley Cyrus and was like, this wedding has to end. Something better might happen for me. But still, Caitlin goes, it doesn't matter that I abandoned them and don't know them. I can guarantee you that they're living perfect lives. You can't guarantee shit. I just feel like that's like missing the point of your own fucking book. To sit around and be like, you never know who's out there not living their truth. Because I'll get to this later, but I really think that Caitlin has Lena Dunham, Leander Medine disease. Of That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is for us to learn more about Caitlin and for us to revolve around Caitlin. This is not to teach you about lessons in the world around you. This is Caitlin's experience only. And in Caitlin's experience... Everyone that she sees is what she sees. In Caitlin's experience, there's only one person out there who deserves sympathy. And it's Caitlin. So this period after the second divorce begins a couple years of absolute recluse shit. It's like the mid 80s and she is just locked up in her shack in Malibu. She doesn't see anybody. Don't ask about the kids. Specifically not the kids. Specifically not the kids. Who she does see is she starts going to a therapist who specializes in gender dysphoria. So she actually saw an ad for it on the TV and was like, fuck, calls up, gets help and gets given this therapist. It is a godsend. It's the first time she's ever able to say it out loud. She never understood what it was before. And she says that one of the greatest gifts that it gave her was the realization that other people have it too. Something she does that I think is a little Roblo-esque is she's like, I have this incredible therapist. She's able to see the humanity in everybody. And I think something must have happened to her. And then she tells the story about how her therapist had grown up in Auschwitz. And I was like, I don't know, man, if this is your story to tell. I don't think it is. I was like, this really feels like a throw everything sad at the wall and see if we can get them to cry at my book on my behalf. I have this weird thing where it really weirds me out when people say their therapist's first and last names. That is a real thing you hate. I don't know why I hate it because I do think that there should be There's like doctor-patient confidentiality, and I think you should keep your doctor confidential. (laughs) So with the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, 
Caitlin starts taking steps to transition at this point, she actually has a plan to transition by the age of 40. Which would have happened in 1989. That's her goal. First of all, I have to say, she goes into the most intense chapter about electrolysis that she uses, where they zap your hair follicles and burn it to a pulp and then pull out the dead follicle and remove the ability for the hair to grow there. And she does it all over her face and then her chest and her body so that she doesn't have hair. And she talks about how it's the fire of 30,000 suns. It takes three hours a week, every week for three years to get all the hair off of her body. And she cannot remember the woman's name who did it. I think if you meet with somebody for three hours a week, every week for three years, you should be able to come up with their name, especially for a book where you have professional fact checkers. But also she talks about it in this way that it's this searing pain that no one could possibly comprehend. And she's actually said, she goes, I hated myself so much that I took on the pain because I thought I deserved it because I was punishing myself. And then Ashley goes, that's just laser hair removal. It is laser hair removal. People do it on their badges. Women do this every day to be fit for society. Most celebrities have all of their arm hairs lasered all the way off. Kim Kardashian is lasered to a pulp. I've thought about it a couple of times. It seems really painful, but the way it's written about in this book, it's like this pain that no person could ever fathom. And I'm like, I do think a lot of people know this pain. She also goes on hormones, hormone blockers. She develops breasts. She gets a nose job. She begins this process. It's about four years in the making. And she says she's standing on the cliff, looking down at the waters. And there's just like one step left. She's more regularly dressing in women's clothes, getting in her car, driving around and testing out this new persona. And she feels so alive when she does it. But right before she's about to make the final commitment and get a breast augmentation and facial feminization surgery and take the next few steps, she panics. She's at the cliff and she says, but I realize more than ever the repercussions of potential discovery and not only because of the kids and making a living. I have a chance to see how people close to me react, which is not react at all. And after those meetings with the triumvirate, my gender issues are never mentioned again. I guess they don't know what to say or are afraid of saying something wrong or assume I don't want to talk about it anymore when the opposite is true. I want to talk about it with the handful of people I trust. I've spent so much of my life not talking about it, but when they don't, I wonder if they view me differently, which in turn makes me think I should have never told them. The thing is, it's starting to bubble up as a news headline. There's this fear of getting found out before telling people. And Caitlin has a PR person absolutely destroy the story. There is still rumblings of it, but there's no reputable source about it anymore. It is crazy to me, a gossip hounder, that there's always been these rumors and I had never heard them. I think that once Caitlin joined forces with the Kardashians, there was not going to be a rumor again. Chris, pre or post fame, keeps her family's image in lock. So... Kind of that fear, the fear with the story getting exposed sends her a couple steps back and she decides not to transition fully. And then around this time is when she meets Chris, which we find out from Chris's book, they were introduced by a mutual friend. A mutual couple friend. Chris was friends with the wife who was also like a hottie with a body. Chris only knows hotties with bodies. Who married famous men. So this famous man was like a Dodgers player. I don't care. So this guy's name is Steve Garvey. Not Steve Harvey. And he like really relates to him because he's like, he also was Mr. Clean, perfect guy until the media completely turned on him and destroyed him just because he left his wife and got another woman pregnant from an affair. The media is such a hater. They suddenly deemed him not a good, upstanding, golden, moral high ground anymore. Just because he cheated on his wife and got another woman pregnant. And I'm like, again, I see the media's point. So Chris and Caitlin are immediately... 
I don't want to say like smitten or peas in a pod or whatever, but they have exactly what the other one needs. Caitlin falls in love with Chris and she says, I think we were both getting something out of each other. First of all, I want to say Caitlin says in this chapter, one of the most relatable things she says in all of the chapters where I went, wow, Caitlin, we're very similar. Do you want to know what she says? Uh, Yeah, I do. She says, I have the meatloaf and mashed potatoes because I always have the meatloaf and mashed potatoes when I go out if it's available. You always have the meatloaf and mashed potatoes when you go out if it's available. The thing is, it's not often available because we live in a country that's forgetting its values. (laughs) (laughs) Caitlin loves the fact that Chris also has four children, which appeals to her because she's like, oh, we have equal baggage. It's really funny because it's not equal baggage. Chris has four children that she's raising. Caitlin has four kids somewhere. Yeah. Which I would count as heavier baggage. So I'm really interested in these descriptions of Kris Jenner. She meets her at a party for the first time and she goes, Chris knows everybody and everybody knows her. They are much more happy to see her than me. I've never met somebody who's this effortlessly social. So they start dating almost immediately and they become very serious. I think they're married within seven months. She tells the story. She says, Chris and I start going out. I have a dinner scheduled one night with a producer acquaintance I know and bring Chris along. Since he is in the business, it is one of the job requirements to act as if he knows everyone in business. He is showing off a little bit another job requirement self-importance as a work of art. But every time he mentions someone, Chris says she not only knows her or him, but also the entire family without trying to show off in the least. Finally flummoxed, the producer turns to her in the middle of dinner and says, who are you? To which Chris says something so uncharacteristic of her today that it seems hard to believe, but I was there and she did say it. I'm just a mom in Beverly Hills. Right at that moment, I see qualities in Chris that will serve her extraordinarily well and make her somebody one day. So this also felt like kind of a swipe at Chris to me. Something so uncharacteristic that I can't believe she said it. That actually does feel deeply characteristic. I think if you said, Chris, what are you? She'd go, first and foremost, I'm a mom. Yeah. That is her character. That's the character she plays on the show is, I'm just a mom. I'm just out here trying to tell my kids to put their shoes away. It's funny, but I do think Caitlin is right in being like, this story is why she's so successful. She goes, a combination of charm and professional intelligence, knowing that remembering a birthday goes a long way. Chris comes off as nothing but impressive to me. And that came across in her book too. In Chris's book, I was just like, God damn, this bitch does just get it done. Honestly, Chris's gender is more interesting to me than Caitlyn's because Chris Jenner has become like the ultimate girl boss, successful woman, but in this way where it's like still cloaked in like the traditional domesticity of she is successful because she's first and foremost a mom. And then if she ever gets too threatening, she's like, what? I'm a mom. I'm just a mom. It's like a bumbling relatability to be like, well, I can't figure out how to change the text size on my phone to tell these people that I'm suing their ass. <laughs> there is this duality and the motherhood stereotype of on the one hand it's like the mom who doesn't know the Kristen Bell's name she's mixing up the celebrity she can't remember who got what for lunch but then also like moms are the one who get shit done yeah and Chris plays both characters simultaneously at all time that's one of the things that I find so impressive about her is I think she plays the mom to such a degree it's I do think that's why this is such a good story to define why Kris Jenner is successful because she shows up at a dinner with like a head producer from Hollywood, out producers them and is like, why am I so good at this? I'm just a mom. Like, I'm just a mom. And it's also letting you know, like, I'm a motherfucking mom. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So then we get into their relationship. Caitlin's career needs reviving. Kris is this producer who can outproduce a producer. She's a mom who can outproduce a producer. And she takes the reins, revives Caitlin's career entirely, reminds people of this golden child that they adored, revives the speaking career, gets endorsements, starts creating this whole network of 
money, essentially. And the limelight loves them, okay? They become this glamorous Hollywood couple. She says, we made a glamorous couple, clearly in love. We began to have success in business as a team. I was well known. So sometimes I wondered if Chris was making a statement to her former husband, a big fuck you. This is this weird everything revolves around me thing where it's like, I think that Chris picked you because she saw potential and she saw a business and she saw this mutually beneficial relationship. I don't think it had anything to do with telling Robert to fuck off. I think Chris could have married anyone in the greater Los Angeles area. It's like this weird self-deprecating line that also is like self-aggrandizing. She was just using me because I was a major star that everyone would be jealous of. I think Chris could have dated a major, major star. Chris could date anybody she wants, but I do think Caitlyn Jenner has a perfect combination of star quality, absolutely pushover. Like, Chris needs someone she can control. Chris found a star that she could build. She found a rusty star that she could build into a shiny star, and then that way that shiny star would be forever reliant on her. But I'm saying the fact that there's this idea it was a fuck you to Robert, it wasn't. Yeah, I just think she was somebody that was trying to, like, get on with her life. She was not somebody who was going to have downtime. That comes back later. And it really annoys me the way Caitlin thinks that she's a pawn in Chris and Robert's relationship or the way she thinks anything is a pawn in Chris and Robert's relationship. I'm like, I'm pretty sure once they got divorced, they were divorced. (laughs) I don't, I actually disagree. I disagree that there's no way that they were like playing games with each other, but I don't think the things that Caitlin is interpreting as the games, I think that they're pretty unfair assertions. I think for Caitlin to be like, I was there as a pawn in their games with each other. Well, it's not so much a pawn. I think what's so fucked up about it is she's suggesting that a 20 year marriage that produced two children was just a rebound to like make somebody jealous yeah i think that that's fucked up since let's not kid ourselves everyone wants to know chris and i have good and frequent sex at the beginning can i tell you something i've never once been interested in chris jenner's sex life i've literally never considered it i've assumed that they've had sex because they have two children but even that i was like maybe it was i know chris has sex yeah i don't know who the father of those children are Caitlin told chris about Caitlin often in this book refers to it as gender issues but Caitlin tells Chris before they even have sex for the first time. So Chris is brought in. Caitlin says she didn't want to make the same mistakes as with Linda and Christy. She wanted Chris to be aware right off the bat. And I think Chris just didn't really get it in the same situation. It's just hard to understand, especially when there's no real, like, what are you doing about it? I do think at this point in time, their understanding is similar to if your husband was like, I like to do that belt thing. You'd just be like, all right, don't hurt yourself. But like, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to participate, but find you have these long trips and you like to jerk off to like anime porn. God bless. Don't tell me about it, but God bless. <laughs> but then Caitlin takes it a step further and is very angry at Chris now because she says the fact that I told her and the fact that she always knew that this was something I did on the road, like our agreement was I could dress up on the road and be Caitlin on the road because I had told her this. I don't understand why she was so shocked. She insists she was taken by surprise by my ultimate transition to Caitlin, which obviously means in her mind, she did not know enough. I'm keeping up with the Kardashians. She shed copious tears and coming to grips with it. Giving what she saw, the whole reaction seemed a little puzzling then and seems puzzling now. I do think both things are possible. I think that Chris could have been playing it up for the camera because the idea that she was aware all along and kept it from the kids and kept it from the public. I don't think that that's a storyline that she could sell. But I also think that a conversation about, you know, your spouse having this thing that they do behind closed doors becoming a full-blown transition, I also think that that can be shocking. Yeah, especially in combination with a divorce. This is 20 years of her life that is now completely different. She says that she dressed up a few times in front of Chris before they decided it would become a on-the-road thing. 
And I do think that to say that we had this conversation 20 years ago and then maybe like periodically a few times after that, how could she have been surprised 20 years later? I don't know. She's been doing a lot. She's been very busy. I do find it interesting, though, because, of course, the rumors had started at the end of the 80s. This is now the mid-90s. By the time Kendall and Kylie are born in the mid-90s, Caitlin has put a stop to any of the hormone blockers, obviously, which she had to do in order to have children. She goes and gets her breasts reduced. She really pulls back and doubles down on the Bruce Macho fitness character. She has to get super in shape. They're primarily making money off of infomercials. One, the speeches, but two infomercials where they sell workout equipment, and then supplements and vitamins. And for this business to thrive, you can't just not be Caitlyn. You have to be Bruce, the picture of masculine health. I mean, that is tough, but it's this new distraction, basically. She talks about her experience as a father in the new Kardashian clan. And she says one thing she loves about Chris is Chris is so organized. I mean, that mother thing we're talking about. She talks about going on a ski trip with the original eight. Chris's four kids and Caitlyn's four kids. And she's like, we're going on the ski trip. And Chris was so methodical about making sure each of the eight children had exactly what they needed. We got two giant vans. We drove all 10 of us out there. She's like watching Chris orchestrate this. It brought me back to my children in a way I hadn't had in years. And she was like, I really decided I was going to close the door on Caitlyn and the potential of transition and really just throw myself into being a father and a stay-at-home husband and make this who I am now. They had like two good years, I guess, where she feels very close with her children again for the first time in her life. Not even again. Just So she feels close with the original four and then is bonding very much with the step four. And then it just kind of dissolves, I guess, when Kendall is born. At this point, she loses touch with the children again. And it's interesting because there's two parties who could potentially be the source of trouble here. Neither of the parties are Caitlyn. So she says it starts because Linda sues Caitlin for child support. And this is so upsetting that it starts friction. And Chris is upset, very upset that her efforts to be a good stepmother are not appreciated. She's no longer inclined to make the effort. She also feels that both Linda and Christy really don't want the kids to be with us. Every time she invites them to do something, she feels there is some excuse as to why they can't come. When asked many years later, the Jenner kids have a different viewpoint. Chris just did not want them around anymore once we had our own children. Fierce in her belief that I had only one family now and that it was her and the Kardashians. Linda and Christy say that they never did anything to stop our kids from spending time with Chris and me. She then concludes, an entire book can be written on who did what to whom without any agreement or resolution. Everybody has a version, including me. Okay, well, what's your version? Because it seems like you're blaming every woman in your life at this point, except for yourself. She goes, the kids are a part of my life, and I had to do whatever it took to make them a part of my life. I needed to assert myself, but I could not. So I let go of them, which is a softer way of saying I abandoned them, because I did abandon them. Okay, shout out. You acknowledge that you did, in fact, abandon them. But it comes after this long explanation of the situation was all the women, all the mothers were the problem. I feel like this book turned me into a Chris apologist. I feel like Chris was putting forth a lot of effort into making these group activities happen. And it says one of the things is the kids thought that once Chris and Caitlin had their own children, Chris just lost interest in the other kids. But I feel like maybe what happened is when Chris had a newborn orchestrating these events with eight children became a lot for even a super mom. I mean, I'm sure that all the mothers were annoyed, but at the end of the day, it's your children. You have to do it. This idea that Caitlin is being forced away because all of these wives can't get their shit together. It's like, I'm sorry, it's Chris's fault. It's the Playboy Bunny's fault. Like, I don't know. You had three separate instances of being a bad dad. At some point, it feels like maybe it was you. It seems like you might be a bad dad. I mean... 
even later when Keeping Up with the Kardashians is in full swing, Caitlyn talks about not having autonomy, not having financial independence from Chris at all. And it's like, well, you did have a car and a phone. So I don't know what you needed to go out and see one of your kids, but I'm pretty sure it's just a car and a phone. Nikki Glazer at the roast of Caitlyn Jenner had a really great joke. It's something like, hey, Caitlyn, The Hills is actually on DVD now if you want to watch your son grow up for the first time. <laughs> There's just a lot of apologies in this book about not watching those other kids grow up and none of them feel like they come from a place of any actual apology. She goes, when Casey gets married in 2007, I am not invited, nor should I have been, given my prolonged absences from her life starting at the very beginning when I wasn't there for her birth. True. True. It's not just her own children. She says that like at one point, Chris throws her an Olympic reunion party and doesn't invite her mother or sister and that fractured the relationship with the mom and the sister and Caitlin has this assertion about the fact that it's Chris's family unit and so Caitlin's family isn't really a part of that I mean I wonder that might be true but I also wonder what was Caitlin's ability to be like I have a family too and we need to include them so she says here she goes I could blame my gender dysphoria for what happened there's a tendency to blame everything that goes south in your life on gender dysphoria insecurity and self-doubt do envelop you but none of that somehow justifies abandoning your own children some of them for roughly a decade or the sister you grew up idolizing. Then it's just a sad excuse. And yet it's the excuse I told myself. Here's the thing. I would say good reflection, good acknowledgement. And what are you doing about it now? Because we get to this later. It's bullshit. To this day, she's like, you know, none of my kids have been there for me. Maybe if I sat them down and talked to them, they would have something else to say. But we'll never know. You could still sit them down and talk to them. Once again, you also have a car and a phone. I don't know if you should drive because you're dangerous. But <laughs> the date is November 6, 2021. And it was just Kendall's birthday three days ago. Kaylin did not post for Kendall Jenner's birthday. Not in feed. We don't know what's on stories. I'm going to say as a parent, you have one job and it's to post in feed. I agree with that. I just feel like this book has a lot of swipes at the Kardashian clan. We then get into a quick OJ side. Daily dose of OJ. Drink it in the morning with murder. Caitlin did not have a good opinion of OJ ever. It was not like in Chris's book where you get this buildup of a man that was there for her and a good friend to the family. And then you're like, and he did beat his wife up sometimes, but he was a good friend. Caitlin says OJ was completely the opposite side of the spectrum as me. Women as eye candy and sex toys, physically abusive when he did not get his way and he felt he was being defied. The loud life of the party anywhere and anytime like so many other athletes. He was the most narcissistic, egocentric, neediest asshole in the world of sports I had ever seen. And I have seen a lot of them. So she gives some examples of like times. It was very clear that Nicole Simpson Brown was specifically was afraid of OJ. Of times OJ showed signs of being physically abusive, physically possessive, attacking other lovers. Caitlin hated when they would go on these outings or these dates or vacations with OJ and Nicole. And it's like, I don't know. Why didn't you have a leg to stand on then? If this is something that you saw happening and something that you hated, I'm not saying it's anybody's fault in this situation. But like we said in, in Chris's book, when Chris was at this point aware of abuse and then she's like, if only I had spoken up. And it's like, honestly, yeah. She doesn't say she was aware of abuse. She says she could have suspected it if she had looked into it. And our feeling is it was probably pretty obvious to anybody willing to look into it. Chris chose to ignore it because she did not want to upset the status quo. And what's worse, that or saying I did know that there was physical abuse and I just didn't do anything. Yeah, because Caitlin's in here saying like we all knew this was going on. It was very obvious, but no one did anything. I mean, it's just... I don't know what the point of saying that is. Caitlin says in this book, if only I had done something. And it's like, yeah, if only you had. I don't know. 
She also says that she feels the real reason Robert Kardashian was so staunchly a supporter of OJ and was so famously loyal was because he wanted to say a fuck you to Chris because Caitlyn and Chris had developed this sort of notoriety as being these infomercial stars. So this I want to read a quote because this is the idea that I found to be so fucking out of line. The divorce still devastated Robert. Everybody knew that. And now Chris at that point in the 1990s was appearing in hundreds of infomercials with me looking lean and fit and happy as we promoted our exercise equipment. I wondered if Robert saw all this and began to think she was becoming something of a celebrity and it ate away at him until the OJ case when he became a superstar and completely overshadowed her. All of a sudden he was the one all over TV and I wonder if it was his way of saying to her what I think she was saying to him when she married me. A big fuck you. What? You think that Robert Kardashian defended OJ Simpson tooth and nail to get back at you and Chris? That's insane. That is insane. He said, I'm so jealous of these infomercials. I'd let a woman die. I'm so jealous of these infomercials. I'm going to get this man fucking off scot-free for murdering his wife and a pal. So then we get to what's really interesting about this whole book. Keeping up with the Kardashians. (laughs) Another swipe at Chris. They were watching the Osbournes on MTV. And Caitlin goes, under our own roof, we now have six children, five daughters and a son. The house is awash in puberty and adolescence and young adulthood and two parents with very different styles. It seems to me something is there for television. Chris says she is the one who came up with the idea and decided to actively pitch it to Ryan Seacrest. It's not hard and fast, but there's definitely a Chris gets the credit, but it was my idea. And then Caitlin goes on to talk about how the only reason it got picked up was because of the notoriety of Bruce Jenner. I don't know if I get it. The only person in the room I know is Bruce. That's a quote from Lisa Berger, the vice president of E. And then she goes on to be like, of course, now it's like the most successful reality TV show of all time. As we know, Caitlin in this show for the first couple of years was just kind of there and Caitlin's family was mad. The implication is that I've sold myself out, willingly destroyed what positive reputation I have left. Pretty much on the mark. I mean, at this point, Caitlin, again, has no distraction really and is feeling extremely dysphoric and extremely depressed and really just kind of going through the motion of life. So, of course, they break up. I mean, we kind of buzz through Kardashian fame. There's not a lot of talk about how it affects her life except for that it's not that the Kardashian fame affects Caitlyn's life it's that as Chris's life goes up their marriage dissolves again there's no room for Caitlyn in it really it is kind of ironic that Caitlyn a person who literally transitions at 65 is constantly telling the narrative of I'm the only person who stays the same everyone's changing around me I'm like this is the book about your transition because Chris is the momager because she's in charge of all of Caitlyn's speeches the keeping up with the Kardashian stuff, all of the engagements, all of the family, everything. Caitlin says, I never see a dime. It all goes right to Chris. Plus, whatever I make is nothing compared to the kids because of all their other ventures. Basically, it's just about how Chris is making a fuck ton of money and Caitlin is making a decent amount of money, but says, I do not have a checking account. I have a credit card, but purchases are carefully poured over. Chris is incredibly generous on her own terms. Why didn't you just ask then? Why didn't you say this doesn't work for me? From a deeply personal standpoint, keeping up with the Kardashians is a demarcation for Chris and me. I believe that the more successful it becomes, the less she needs me. I'm not the primary breadwinner anymore. I feel increasingly irrelevant. And we talked about this. We don't think that Caitlyn was ever the primary breadwinner. Chris was the one making... She was the primary product, but it was Chris who... Was winning the bread. Yeah. The problem was Caitlyn was irrelevant because Chris was always the breadwinner. At this point, Caitlyn's entire life is carpool. After Chris and Caitlin break up, the idea of transition again becomes much more present. For a while, it was like tapping on a door and then it was knocking on a door and now it's 
banging down a door in her brain. So once they break up, she finally has the space in her new Malibu home to like really express herself and be who she is and return to the idea of transitioning. And she talks about how it was really stifled during the Kardashian years because of course there was so much paparazzi, so much press. And then even in your own home, you never have a moment to yourself. The whole point of that family is that they do not know boundaries. In that house, I mean, there was just always someone there. So then in this Malibu house, there is room to dress up and explore and figure shit out. Caitlin says at one point, her mom came to visit and saw all the women's clothing and was like, oh my God, you're dating good. She then starts considering transitioning again. She starts with trachea shave and it gets caught by TMZ. I will say it. My heart went out to her during this time because she talks about all the precautions she takes to block out the paparazzi. She's showing up at 6 a.m. She's making these appointments under fake names. No matter what she seems to do within 24 hours, they have photos of her. And she's like, it doesn't matter how many times we swept for paparazzi. Somehow it always came out. And she gets on the phone with Harry Levin, who's the head of TMZ and begs please don't run this. My family doesn't know. And they run it anyway. So at this point, her hand has been sort of forced and it's like, you need to tell your family. I remember this period when these rumors were coming out and it felt so inconceivable to me. It felt insane. And then there was that one photo of the hand on the nail polish. And I remember being like, why is she playing into this? Obviously, this is a tabloid rumor. What a weird time for Bruce Jenner to also then put on nail polish. And it is interesting because if it had happened like five years later there is kind of a reason to be putting on nail polish. First, there's like a PR blitz. She calls back her old publicist that she had worked with years and years ago. And this is one of the funniest examples, I think, of Caitlyn's self-absorption. It's not like she has yes people around her being like, yeah, the world revolves around you. She's constantly getting signs that it doesn't. And so I just want to read this conversation. Caitlyn calls up her old PR guy, Alan, from 30 years ago, from before she was even married to Chris. And she goes, Alan, it's Bruce Jenner. Are you all right? I'm fine. That's good. I bet you've been waiting for this call for the last 30 years. No, not really. It's good to know that Alan hasn't changed a drop. It's just so funny to be like, Alan's whole life has been waiting for this Bruce Jenner transitioning story to drop. And Alan's like, I have not thought about you. <laughs> Alan is very good at his job. They decide to do a Diane Sawyer interview where Bruce Jenner comes out and says that they're going to transition and then a Vanity Fair cover to introduce Caitlyn. It's like a five-hour interview with Diane Sawyer. But a real point of pride of Caitlyn's is that Diane Sawyer was actually on leave at the time because both of her parents died tragically. And she came back early to do this interview, which really goes to show just how important Caitlyn's story is to tell. And then they do the Vanity Fair interview. And so obviously between the two is when the surgical transition happens. Caitlyn undergoes facial feminization surgery and breast augmentation. She then comes out on the Vanity Fair cover. She talks about what she chooses to wear. And I think it's really interesting because she does say that she is a like specifically shallow person. It's hard because it's like you don't want to criticize someone because I obviously have never had that experience of having to like consciously choose to present as a woman. But something I've always felt about Caitlyn Jenner is that she is so focused on the clothing. Early on in the stages of her coming out, she'd say things like the hardest thing about being a woman is choosing what to wear every morning. And I was like, I don't think that that's true. I think it's the constant fear of rape. I will say, I just think we could talk for a while about the things that are harder than picking out clothes. But Caitlin addresses this head on and she's like, listen, I just think personality wise, some people care a lot about clothes and some people don't. And I am somebody who mostly cares about clothes and how I look. It is so funny to come out as shallow and have that be like your moral high ground. And I also feel like because clothes have been such a key part of 
her experience, being able to put on a dress and feel comfortable and happy and free. And I also get the fear of like, I have to look good on this cover because if I look like shit, people will talk about it a lot. So I don't know if you guys remember, she did end up wearing like a bustier in underwear, like a cream bustier in underwear. And she is an older woman. And so she talks about how even though her kids are very supportive, she's like, I didn't really consider how it might be weird for my sons to see their 65 year old father in a bustier. I'm like, yeah, I don't think you ever consider anybody but yourself. Specifically, not your children. Do you know another thing that I found interesting? When the Diane Sawyer interview aired, she says she watched the East Coast feed with the Kardashians and then drove across town to watch the West Coast feed with the Jenners. And I wonder why they couldn't all be in the same room. I don't think the Jenners wanted to be. She also says the Kardashians were hurt that it was a primarily Jenner-focused interview series where like they mostly talked to the Jenner family and they left the Kardashians out. And she's like, I can't help it. That was marketing that told me anytime the Kardashians are involved with anything, people read it as a transparent fake money grab. So I had to leave them out. It's funny because then, of course, with the Vanity Fair cover, it's the opposite. She's like, I didn't care about what people thought would be the demure, appropriate thing to do. I had to look my sexiest. Mostly she does what she wants to do and she likes the attention and fame. This book kind of suggests that characterization of her on Creeping Up with the Kardashians, that she's like this bumbling idiot in the back who does not want part of the notoriety of the family. But if you look at her life, she's actually been in the fame game for much longer than any of the Kardashians. And nobody has to. If you win a gold medal, you don't have to become a staple of the Hollywood scene. You could become a coach. I mean, in that quote from her mom about if she had just come in second, she would have been a coach. You can come in first and be a coach. You don't have to stay famous. The interview airs and then the transition becomes public and she makes her debut to the world as Caitlyn. And then let's get into the chapters that are interwoven about post-Caitlin life. We have not been 100% truthful taking you through this book. This book is written in this interesting like parallel timelines. It goes chapter on, chapter off. Interspersed throughout are these moments of her current reality juxtaposed with how she was raised. And one of the things that she says at both the beginning of the book and at the end is that now that she has gone through this experience where she's come out and is living her authentic life, all she wants is to help other people. She says specifically... I think about all the issues facing the transgender community and what I can do to help because that has become a sacred commitment in my life. She also says later at the end of the book when the two timelines have merged now into one and she has just gotten her facial feminization surgery and the breast augmentation and she's just come out of the surgery and she's in a ton of pain and she's having her first and only panic attack of her life. She talks herself down by saying, I'm going to live authentically for the first time in my life. I'm going to learn every single issue facing the brothers and sisters of the transgender community. I'm going to raise money. I'm going to start a foundation. I'm going to use my public platform to tirelessly speak on the issues. I'm going to have the enthusiasm for life that I have not had in 39 years since the Olympics. I will make a difference because I am different. So that's her intention. Let's now talk about what these more contemporary chapters is almost more a journal diary rehash as opposed to the rest, which is like a chronological autobiography. In terms of representing the trans community, she really goes back and forth on whether or not she wants to be the figurehead or not. But she does acknowledge that she is one of the most visible trans people out there, exemplified by the fact that right after she came out, she was awarded at the ESPYs the Arthur Ashe Award of Courage. And there was immediate uproar, which she takes very personally. She's like, it's not my fault they nominated me. Wouldn't you accept it too? But even she says what she did wasn't courageous. It was necessary. And coming out this late, she doesn't feel actually took that much courage coming out earlier would have taken more courage but then she's like when other people say I'm not courageous fuck you she has this very funny back and forth where I feel like she's constantly putting you in the position to compliment her 
So at the very beginning, she's talking about the things she has done for the trans community. And I don't want to belittle it, but the exact example she comes up with are like, she puts two young trans teens in touch with each other. And to this day, they still follow each other on Instagram. One trans teen was struggling and she was like, call me sometime. And they did call her sometime. And she goes, I'm not a hero. I'm just a human. And I'm like, that itself isn't actually the most heroic thing I've ever heard to get two teens to follow each other on Instagram. And then another of my favorite examples is she's like, sure, I've gone to hang out with Lady Gaga at the Vanity Fair after Oscar party, but that wasn't as rewarding as stopping someone from killing themselves. That's actually much more rewarding. And I was like, I actually think you would be hard pressed to find somebody who would say hanging out with Lady Gaga at a party is more rewarding emotionally but then preventing suicide in a team. Like people agree with you. So at this SP's awards, she says the trans community already has issues with me and I've only reached my four month anniversary. They are fabulous, but some can be tough and critical, frustrating and debilitating at times. I'm already hearing that I'm not representative of the community. I certainly won't dispute that, although such judgment strikes me as hostile and exclusionary and counterproductive to our collective cause, since much of our fight is to get society to remove such meaningless labels as representative. We are all in this together, or at least we should be. Okay, so that is a nonsense sentence. Of course, you are all in this together, but there are people who are more visible than others. All trans people can't be collectively the most known trans person. That's not how it works. I mean, all groups have representatives. That's why we have elections. Every group has a representative and that's just how it has to function because you can't listen to every single person alive speaking. And so she is a well-known person who by default ends up a representative. And the way that she like accepts and rejects it constantly is really confusing. Right out the gate, even that author's note that I read where she's like, I recognize that most of the trans community would prefer not to be dead named. I don't care. She goes on to say this about winning the Olympics. She goes, Bruce was not a lie. Bruce existed. What I did lie about or at least obfuscate was Caitlin's existence. I was not a transgendered Olympic champion at the time, but Bruce Jenner. If I was a transgender woman, I would have been stripped of the medal for competing in a men's event. Bruce won the Olympics. I lived as a man before I transitioned. I had a life as Bruce. I obviously don't want to be called Bruce, but I'm not going to bury him and send him the dead name pile. There has to be some reality here, at least for me. I get that. That is fair to say that you personally don't feel it necessary to bury your former self. That's and I also understand that you have a very unique situation where you weren't just living not as the woman that you were, but that you were living a very public persona that you had crafted as the polar opposite of how you felt. And that that person did have achievements. That was a character I portrayed. Bruce Jenner, the character, the macho man, he won the Olympics. And I will say, I didn't quite understand that using dead name was so not okay for a while. And I think it's because there isn't a clear united source on it. There are different preferences, but I would say the majority of the trans community is deeply opposed to it and feels very triggered and really would prefer you not use dead names. So to be this most visible trans person alive and not acknowledged to just say, well, this doesn't bother me for this reason. It's like, okay, but please say like a lot of other people don't want this. And the way that she says it is very much... Like the woman who's against women's rights, like women are annoying. There's this tone of it's unreasonable to expect people to be able to keep up with pronouns. It's unreasonable to expect people to be able to not use a dead name. And I understand your personal choice is not to use that. But the way that she doesn't even take the next sentence and say, but if you're wondering the other side, the side that I've just in this book claimed to want to do everything I could to understand the trials and help them 
I'm not even going to share a way that other people feel that I'm sitting here representing. Like it only serves the people who already agree with you and doesn't actually help to open up their eyes to anyone else's experience, but your own. Yeah. It feels very Lena Dunham disease to me to be like, you have this deeply unique situation, but whether you want to or not, you represent a group that is less heard. So is it useful to be like, here's my experience and here's why it's the only experience? Or is it useful to be like, here is my experience and here is information that would be helpful for you to know if you're not aware of the topic. Anyway, I feel like it's so overwhelmingly spoken about that you shouldn't use dead names for her to be like, I don't know, it's actually fine. You've like probably harmed a lot of trans people because someone who is doing their research, but maybe only saw this is like, oh, a trans person told me that this was okay. Throughout the book, she'll be like, I am white. I am rich. I am privileged. Are you happy? I said it. I don't have everyone's experience. But that doesn't mean that the trans community can just reject me. And it's like, they're not rejecting you because you were rich and because you were white. They're rejecting you because you're doing things like this, saying, well, my experience has been, and then you don't stop to say, but another person's experience might be different. Or I may feel this way because the Bruce Jenner brand brought me millions of dollars and notoriety and all of the opportunity I have that has allowed me to transition into Caitlyn with top surgeries, with top clothes with an entire media and PR program that is guaranteed that I get to be celebrated for this choice and I don't live in fear. I haven't been cut off from my family. I mean, you got to come out on the cover of Vanity Fair. And that was because of the Bruce Jenner name. So I understand that maybe you feel less hurt by that past, but to not even take the time to be like, obviously my experience is unique in that sense. Here's why other people who have had to fight harder than I have to get to be their true identity don't want to be dead named. Just like throw it a line. Throw it a line. I mean, here's a really good example of a chapter in which Caitlin just wholeheartedly rejects that the community could have an opinion outside of her own. Caitlyn Jenner goes to see this movie called The Danish Girl in which Eddie Redmayne plays one of the first post-op trans people ever. And it was pretty maligned by the trans community because they didn't see themselves in it necessarily. I mean, it is really complicated when you make a movie about a group and none of them are a part of the creative process. And you're just like, nah, but I pretty much get it though. Anyway, Caitlin does not understand why this was not okay. She says, after all, it's not a documentary and the purpose was to create something eye-opening and entertaining for a global audience. In other words, an enjoyable two hours and it was pretty much that, or so I thought. So there was a rumor that Caitlyn Jenner was going to meet with Eddie Redmayne, thereby endorsing the movie when the trans community had rejected the movie. So another trans person that Caitlyn knows from I Am Kate reaches out. Do you want to be Caitlyn or Jenny? I'll be Jenny. So this is a word-for-word conversation that Caitlyn has with Jenny, a transgender woman who has spent a lot of her life fighting for trans rights. I just wanted to whisper in your ear that if you did meet with Eddie Redmayne, a lot of trans people would be all mad because the Danish girl is problematic. You can and should, of course, do as you like. But I do try to protect you from unnecessary turmoil when I can. Why is the community up in arms about Eddie? I saw the film and it was great. It's very complicated. Briefly try to explain. The film is not accurate. It's a Hollywood adapted version of a fictionalized version of a story of a trans woman from 80 years ago. It's not an accurate story. It suggests that forced feminization and clothing are what triggers the transgender impulse. When we all know it goes much deeper than that. Also, you're right. It's a movie and it has to be entertaining. I thought it was very well done. The community is very tired of cisgender actors playing us and getting credit for being so brave when it's our actual lives that are being portrayed. I thought the movie was beautiful in places and that Eddie was really interesting to watch. Please, community, get a life. He was great and deserves an Oscar. 
Well, maybe so. But if you publicly endorse the film or him, I assure you that you will have a firestorm on your hands again. Are you meeting with Eddie? Okay, I got it. All I really care about is keeping you from getting hurt. Nobody's going to hurt me. They don't like me or anybody who's in the public eye. It's sad. Eddie is a great actor, but the part that he is playing is a cisgendered actor's portrayal of a cisgendered screenwriter's adaption of a cisgendered novelist's fictionalized version of a transgendered person's life. It's kind of like if you watch Star Wars in hopes of learning a whole lot about science. Does this make any sense? No, and these people don't make any sense. End scene. She reflects again on this conversation and says, Upon further reflection review, I now have this to say about the Danish girl and Eddie Redmayne's performance. Privately, I thought the film was marvelously entertaining and Redmayne's performance deserved an Oscar. While trans women and trans men must be better represented in Hollywood, like African-Americans and members of the gay and lesbian community and women and everyone else who is not a white male, I can't imagine anyone who could have played the role better than he did. But publicly, when I went to the Vanity Fair Oscar party in February 2016, these were my thoughts. Please, Eddie, do not make eye contact or God forbid smile or worst of all, come up to me to talk. Turn your back or head in the opposite direction and just leave. I'm also putting you on notice that if asked about the film, I will say it was shameful. Sounds ridiculous? Of course it does, because this is ridiculous. So in this story, it is Caitlyn Jenner who is the victim, and she is paying the ultimate price of not being able to talk to Eddie Redmayne at a party. (laughs) She then goes on to say that we want to stamp out hate, and yet there are members of the trans community who take great pleasure and satisfaction in expressing their hate for me when all I've tried to do is ceaselessly advocate for my sisters and brothers. You are not advocating for them because they are explicitly telling you why this movie is not helpful to them, and you are saying what you think is stupid. You are not advocating for them because you're saying that when you guys feel that dead names are really traumatizing and not something that you want to hear, I actually don't care, and so I'm not going to advocate for not using dead names. Like... You're obviously not advocating for your... <laughs> well, it's just so funny. She goes, the film is so important because it shows the pain LB went through because of an intolerant and hateful society. That has tremendous application today for a public that so often refuses to understand. Um, I would say this is an example of you literally refusing to understand because it's laid out pretty clearly and you just call an entire community ridiculous. Yes. Then she goes on to say, yes, I wanted to meet Eddie Redmayne, but not after being told by someone who has my best interest at heart that it would cause members of the trans community to become upset with me. So I had no choice but to stay silent. It becomes frustrating and debilitating and depressing to have to censor yourself like this. For a community pushing for acceptance, we can sadly be brutally judgmental of each other. We insist upon tolerance, but only to an extent. We want inclusion, but we aren't inclusive at times. All of the criticisms sting, but I brush them away. I will continue to push issues facing the transgender community the best way I see fit. Fuck off. You don't know anything. I mean, a woman who has literally dedicated her life to these issues is like very clearly and calmly explaining to you the other side. And then also saying, but you're of course allowed to do whatever you want to do. Just heads up. And you're sitting here going, I'm being censored. I'm depressed. The trans community is so hateful. Earlier I said this book was humorless, but I think she tries to end it with a joke. It says, I have learned some lessons. The next time Eddie Redmayne plays a trans woman, count me out hilarious the funniest joke in this book is you saying that your community says stupid shit all the time and you're being silenced this is a theme that comes in and out throughout the entire book there's literally a paragraph where she talks about how she's been so well received by the media and her family and then the next chapter is about how the only backlash she's received has been from the trans community who's been so horrible to her and i'm like okay so is the point of this book that you are the victim of the trans community who's bullied you like Caitlin's just trying her best to be the best advocate, to be the best father, to be the best husband, 
And it's everyone else that's making it too hard. One of the last sections of the book, she's like, I think of success. I think of failures. I think of Bruce. It is only in becoming Caitlin that I've realized that he was a good man. Can I tell you? I don't know that he was. I don't think he was. In 2015, pre-transition, Caitlin killed someone. Manslaughtered somebody. It was an accident, but also the way that it doesn't seem to have actually affected her. If I even accidentally killed somebody, I think it would ruin my life. Yeah, I don't think I would keep podcasting. In terms of advocating for the community the giant red flag that we haven't even mentioned yet is that she is a staunch republican and historically the republicans have not appreciated trans advocacy they really don't give a fuck in fact they would love to make it actively as hard as humanly possible for trans people to exist in this world and they do this often. And she says in this book, it was easy to come out as trans. It was harder to come out as a Republican. I guess that might've been a joke too. I don't fucking know. It's hard to tell. And there's this line. I am not a one issue voter confined solely to LGBTQ issues. I am a conservative and always have been particularly on fiscal issues. And I'm not going to change to make myself more popular or more politically palatable. I did not transition to become a liberal Democrat. And it's like, okay, I get it. So the point of this book is that first and foremost, I do not represent the trans community just because I'm trans. First and foremost, I am a part of the rich community and the rich people come first. And she will defend them with her life. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the trans community is so mean to her, but the Republicans, even though they do literally try and pass laws, she's like, can't you see past that? They're trying to save us money. In conclusion, I don't know. It was just an interesting book of a narcissist. A true narcissist can like overcome an obstacle and in no way take that to apply it to another person. I think it is like a very celeb specific. Not that all narcissists are celebs, but a lot of celebs are narcissists. And so you read these memoirs and you're like, wow, we learned a lot about you and you learned a lot about nobody else. I mean, she talks about in the end of the day, in terms of parenting, what she's learned. She says she's still trying to sort out her relationship with all of her children. I thought transition would draw us closer. And initially it did. But over the past several months, there has been a void a distance with many of them. I want them to be more attentive, but how attentive was I when some of them were growing up? And it's like, yeah, really good fucking point. Everything you've learned, the fact that now you've transitioned and you're say you're very happy and you feel comfortable in your skin and you're still not sitting down with your children, even though you acknowledge abandoning them was bad. When do you become the good person that you like, claim Bruce was? they're all in town. I know they travel a lot, but like to have a lunch with Kylie every now and then, to have a coffee date with Brody every now, like what is Brody doing? Brody's free. Brody's free. Brandon's free. Who's Brandon? <laughs> Let me tell you something, Bert. If he's, I, I know he started that company from scratch, that dog walking company. <laughs> he's but I busy. Think he's he's walking. <laughs> so go on a walk with him, <laughs> Ashley. Yeah, Claire. If people want to connect with other wormies, where should they go? Well, they should go to the wormhole on Facebook or wait in real life. You oh my can god! Meet other wormies. Watch live comedy November 17th at Nikki's Unisex at 7 p.m. We will be hosting a live comedy show with our friend Stuart Fullerton. Who you may know from the Patreon. She's hilarious. It will be, I don't know, probably the night of our lives. And then of course, for more content, check out our Patreon. Yeah, check out our Patreon. We do new episodes every Thursday. So if this isn't enough... There's more. And then Ashley. Yeah, Claire. Would you please let me know who my favorite worms of the week are who have five-star reviews? Oh my God, you guys. I would like to thank our five-star reviewers. Thank you to QB. Hell of a pass you just threw with that review. Midi picky. Thank you for not being too picky with your podcast. Kerr rules six. Goddamn, you do rule booed up one two three congratulations on your nuptials layla cares dude i fucking care about you too 
Twinkly Tiny, thank you for sparkling. Dr. Marmon, thank you for coming to the OR for this occasion. Annabelle333, lucky number. Thank you, Lacey Renee, for being so fashion forward. Who doesn't love lace? Nancy Pow, kapow. Thanks so much. Ria Wojo. Oh my God, Maria. Thank you so much. Darius MF. Goddamn. Thanks for being a great review and motherfucker. Jezebel James. Thank you for your bells. Tuo Kit. Thank you for leaving us this review kit. Cock Destroyer. Hell yeah, bitch. Get him. The P20, thanks for giving us all 20. Hey, Shay Tay, hey, back at ya. Baby got you. Baby, thank you for having our back. Amandalt Zell, thanks for this zealous review. Paris and 90, uh, the reviewer of lights. Nanjazz, thank you so much for all these letters. Vic 3001, oh, my favorite year. DFITS234, Thank you for not throwing a fit. Future Ford, baby, we're going back to the future and a Ford this time. Catherine Bull, thank you for tearing up this china shop. Bella 55, thank you for these 55 stars. RE255, thank you for being alive. R.L. Witty, thank you for your wits. Anna Jean Rem, thank you, and I hope you get some good REM sleep tonight. Helga, 91.6, thank you to Helen Back. Ulysses, thank you for being my favorite Game of Thrones character. M.G. Not K, thank goodness for leaving out the K. Britley 9, thank you for being so fine. R04721M, thank you for a new Wi-Fi password. And that is all this week. Thank you guys so much, and I will see you next week. Bye.